1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimczynski and I, Niels kastr where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listener, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement that the turtles got back in the 1980s, as Jerry puts it, and also to the people who are new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your appetite to learn more by diving into the back catalogue and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like uh, last week's episode with Jerry, where we had a really good conversation about the pros and cons of trading single stocks, as opposed to stock indices as a trend follower, and where we also got an update on Jerry's Bitcoin position. Mark, always great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are today?
2: Thanks for having me. Things are going well, albeit it was a a crazy week. It's amazing how focused we were on the Fed and in terms of giving information content for which people could react. They did not disappoint.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that's uh, definitely something we will come back to uh, today. Before I do my little market wrap, I do want to take a couple of minutes to acknowledge and give a shout out to those of you who left a rating and review this week, because we so appreciate the help and uh, the time that you put in to do so. Now, this may only be from some of the countries in iTunes that I caught up with, but certainly Ed, and we had Fred, we had Kato we had someone who calls himself or her Excel X, we had Omar from Canada, we had the speculator from the United Kingdom, all of you left not only five-star ratings, which, of course, we are really appreciative of, but you also left some really nice reviews at the same time. And I can only hope and encourage the rest of you listening to our podcast every week that maybe you could do the same, go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, because they really do matter. Now, as a little market wrap, of course, we probably all remember not long ago when the Federal Reserve Chairman said... We're not even thinking about raising rates, which, of course, led me to maybe the best way of describing how the Fed creates their consensus. And this is a quote that comes from a person called Abba Eben. He says, A consensus means that everyone agrees to say collectively what no one believes individually. Maybe a little bit harsh, but narrative from authorities, they do really matter. And I just think some of the things the Fed have said in recent time has been a little bit silly. The results of this week's FOMC announcement and the press conference that followed has been viewed as hawkish and the markets have reacted as such. But time will tell if this really is the correct conclusion. The Fed's expectations as per the quote-unquote dot plot is that the first Fed fund's rate hike is still over 18 months away. And moreover, they will continue to pump $120 billion a month into the secondary market for the foreseeable future. But perhaps one could argue that the bigger news of the week is the Fed system open market account, the assets, the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, which reached an all-time high of $7.965 trillion. That equates to about $1,000 for each person on this earth and their reverse repo facility topped 750 billion. The Fed is pumping so much money into the system that banks need to turn them around and lend them back to them. That doesn't seem that healthy, in my opinion. Getting back to the FOMC decision, markets have reacted as if the Fed has gotten ahead of the game and inflation is no longer a concern. Bond traders flattened the the yield curve with the 230 yield spread shrinking from 201 basis points to 175 basis points, in just over two days. Again, this is only on the back of the Fed suggesting that they will begin to consider tapering their open market purchases. This is, however, likely that they won't actually begin the taper until the fourth quarter, and it's really anyone's guess at what pace they will do it. The final bit of the FOMC postmortem is that they did raise the IOER and the RRP interest rates by 0.05 basis points each. And that did, I guess, have the intended effect of allowing T-bills to drift above the zero level. And the narrative from the Feds has had huge impacts of the mar- on the markets, of course, this week. But it wasn't the only news causing the damage. Because when you look at it, prices of commodities fell sharply on Thursdays, cutting into months of gains and also weighed or started to weigh a little bit on equity markets. And this is as actually as China steps in to cool off rising prices as the US dollar also started to strengthen the declining commodities were pretty widespread with futures prices of things like palladium and platinum falling more than 11 and 7% respectively along with declines of more than 5% in corn futures 4% uh, for copper and oil prices also fell about 2% on Thursday and Thursday's move continued a slide that actually began earlier in the week thanks to these actions by Chinese regulators The Chinese government agency announced a plan on Wednesday to release reserves in key metals such as copper and aluminum, according to an article on Reuters. So if you were to look at a table of futures markets with just the percentage change for this week, you would notice a sea of red this week. Mark, just to bring you in here, what's, it's been a few weeks, as usual, since we last spoke. What's kind of caught your, if we take this week aside, maybe what, because I know we're going to come back to it, what has kind of caught your attention, either maybe from a market perspective and what you think that might have in terms of influence on sort of rules-based investors?
2: Well, I guess the big issue that we see is the difference between narrative investing and rules-based investing. Those are not the same. And I think we could, you know, elaborate on this. But I think that the market has focused in on a few narratives, and then when information changes that moves against that narrative, then there becomes a big revision in in positioning and trading. What do I mean by that? This is is that the big narrative was we're going to have reflation, and so everybody sort of put on reflation trades, you know, around around the world. And commodities might be the perfect example of a uh, reflation trade. If you ask people, what is the best asset class to hold if we're going to have rising inflation? They would say, hold commodities. And yet, when you look at if you trade commodities, you find out that commodities are not all the same. You can't think of commodities as monolithic. You could easily have a situation where you could be short some commodities in a commodity uh, world that people should prefer. So a perfect example would be some of the grain markets. Some of the grain markets actually were hit hard this week, but some of them were turning over their trends earlier. So if you're a trend follower, you would sort of say, I might be short some grains because that is what the price action is telling me. On the other hand, the narrative would say, well, I got to hold commodities because – it's the best inflation trade. I believe inflation is going up. Therefore, I should hold the basket. And so, so you can sort of see that there's a conflict between narrative and trend. And to th- drive this a little bit uh, deeper is that, uh, well, what does it mean to be rational? <laughs> and when you say rational, you have to be consistent. It doesn't mean you have to be right rationality assumes that you're consistent in your behavior. So if you're, if you believe a certain narrative that all the trades that you put on should be consistent with that narrative. Okay. So if you're a reflation trade, you're going to have to be long commodities. You're going to have to be, you know, short bonds. You should be long equities and some, but the behavior of equities may differ based on your view of inflation. Now, that's different than what a trend follower means to be rational. A trend follower and a rules-based ma- manager will say, I have to be rational. Also, it means I have to be consistent with my strategy, but my consistency may be different or in conflict with a narrative.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure we'll come back to this topic later as well. But I think other narrative, because I think the reflation trade for sure has been a big narrative recently. And what it also meant was that I think a lot of people were starting to become quite bearish in the way they thought about bonds. Of course, bonds actually have done pretty well <laughs> in the last few months. So that's also where this is interesting. Not that that necessarily has helped trend followers, but I'm just saying it's interesting about how these things get told in the press and what you know a lot of investors might think is that's what's going on. But then when they, you look at the prices, something else is going on. Same with the dollar, not least from kind of the, Maybe you know the Bitcoin part of our, our space talking about how the dollar is just going to collapse and all of that. And hey, suddenly we see the dollar finding its uh, its feet again, uh, at least for the last uh, you know few days or a or, or couple of weeks. So I'm sure we'll come back to this because narrative really does matter, as as I mentioned earlier. Let me just bring everyone up to speed on the trend-following strategies that we run and also on my own trend-following model so that you can follow along what happened. I mean, no doubt it was a bad week for not just our trend-following strategies but for the trend-following industry as a whole. And these events, they do happen from time to time and they're always tough for trend-followers and other rules-based investors. And in a sense, they should be because we're trying to follow and capture long-term trends. And so when all of those trends decide to reverse more or less all of them at the same time, we should be giving back some of the profits that we have built up in the last few weeks or months. So although they're painful, we know that it's the price we pay, so to speak, for capturing long-term trends. And perhaps, actually, if we're going to turn it around a little bit to our advantage, I think there are so many people still out there who don't have either any exposure to trend following or not enough exposure to trend following. So these periods actually also create some opportunity for people to to top up their exposure or to get exposed in the first place to trend following. So I do see some positives as, as well. And, you know, let's remember, of course, that... It's only one week. Specifically on our side, we have 55 markets in the portfolio, 44 of those markets suffered a loss this week, and that's really how the week turned out to be pretty tough, but it's a combination of a lot of small losses, so to speak. The only sectors that came out, I would say, flattish really was energy and fixed income, not a lot of action at the end of the day performance-wise. In those two sectors, the worst markets, not surprisingly, many of those are the ones who've done the best recently, like the grain markets and U.S. equities. Currencies also suffered a reasonable setback with the rally in the U.S. dollar against its longer-term downtrend. Gold and silver did not provide any protection. They both fell and um, and actually quite decent in terms of its of their sell-off. All in all, a tough week. This was also confirmed by my own trend barometer, It finished the week at 34. That's a weak reading. So it confirms, a quote-unquote, a bad environment for trend following right now. In terms of the volatility strategies that we have on our side, it was a quiet week in the equity and volatility land, the first three days at least of the week. While there was some initial reaction immediately following Powell's speech, and the VIX did jump above 19, I believe, The overall short-term impact on VIX and the S&P was pretty limited. And as of Thursday, end of day, the VIX actually had dropped back again below 18. Now, the larger impact on currencies, the US dollar in particular and commodities, did not immediately translate into any equity market volatility. But Friday was the monthly and quarterly S&P 500 expiration day, option expiration day, I should say with a lot of open interest and therefore volatility exposure. And so the day actually started off yesterday much more volatile than the previous days of the week. It seems as if stock markets and also volatility took some time to digest the events of this week as the S&P plunged in late Friday trading, finishing about down almost 2% for the week and the VIX start to rally towards the end of the week and especially in the last couple of hours of trading yesterday. So it finished around 20.7, actually, and that's up five points for the week. So percentage-wise, quite a big rise in volatility. Now, my own trend-following model, where, of course, I can be much more uh, detailed, performance was not great. It was down probably around 5%. It's down 2.4% for the month, so not too bad. It's up 11.3% for the year so far. The performance, if you break it down, this month so far, in terms of the models, it's really the uh, Group 2 models, not surprising because they uh, are long biased. They're down 2.28%. Group 3 models, the fast reacting, down 0.43%. And Group 1 classic trend is actually still up 0.31%. Sectors, in terms of contribution, currencies were were doing uh, or is doing the worst so far. Accounting pretty much for the whole loss for the month. And that's followed precious metals and base metals. And the best sectors this uh, month so far is equities and energy. Single market, if we drill down to that. Gold, copper, Canadian dollar doing the worst, forming the bottom three markets. And in the top so far this month, all equities, the SMI, the SPI, and the NASDAQ doing best so far. In terms of trading this week, the week started out with one of the models buying a little bit of NASDAQ. And then... It got stopped out of a couple of copper positions on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, it got out of a lot of euro FX, soybean oil, gold, and tried even to go short the US 10-year notes. And then obviously came the Fed effect, so to speak, liquidations of positions continued Thursday in markets like sugar, zinc, British pounds. And then Friday, it just continued with exits in many of the currencies and metals positions. So at the end of the week... I just this morning had a look at open positions. It's really mainly energies and equities that are left with a few other things. So it'll be quite interesting to see how this somewhat more concentrated portfolio at the moment will evolve from here. To give you an idea of this risk measure that I follow, which is how much would the model lose on Monday if everything got stopped out, we're down to 11.36%, down from 17.46% the last, last week. So positions obviously being stopped out, that reduces that number. And also, of course, some markets getting closer to their stop levels. It was a pretty busy week compared to uh, previous weeks. There were about 40 trades for the week, all in all. So that's where we stand in CTA land. For that, we'll obviously come to the industry as a whole as we wrap up our conversation later. Now, Mark, I wanted to start out with just a few questions that we had coming in. Sure. The first question is kind of a follow-up question from last week where Omar sent in a question. And so let me just give you a little bit of context here. Last week, Omar had asked about whether it's really possible for retail investors to invest as a trend follower. And Jerry and I gave our answers, but I did mention, which I often do, that for certain investors, especially just depending on your Obviously, how much time you spend on developing your models and all of that, but also in terms of account size, it often makes more sense to invest with an established manager than trying to do it yourself. So that's the context. And then Omar writes this week, and he continues, I'm more inclined to Jerry Parker's recommendation to practice and learn by doing, rather than putting money under a CTA's management. I appreciate both views and perspectives. Certainly both works, and each fit better, better, with different people. I'm already trading and look for the best method to fit my restrictions. One account trading to uh, one account trading to look for trend following strategies. Trading from Canada and with four small accounts less than $100,000 each presents some challenges, but it is what it is and that's what I'm dealing with. So if I may, my next question is why trend following is associated mostly to futures. Background to my question I can't trade futures in my account and I think the capital amount wouldn't allow either by mar- wouldn't be allowed either by margin requirements if I could trade futures. what are your thoughts to replace futures as instruments by long-term options calls or puts for example a UNG call for January 2023 I'm long the net gas after it broke out a 20 week moving average. I took one twentieth position, and then he divided that into actually uh, half of that into a, a ticker called BOIL and another one called UNG. Now that I'm at 20% profitable, I'm thinking to use the profit only to buy a long-term call option contract and free the initial capital it took to look for another position. So obviously the point is here, and we hear that a lot, capital restrictions is a big amount, is a, is a big issue. And the, what Omar is really asking for, is there a way, which is not so capital uh, intensive as, as futures, such as buying options, that could work? Right.
2: Well, well, I think you need to take a step back and say trend following and rules based as a trading mechanism and then trend following as a portfolio management mechanism. Those are slightly different and and some people might call it tactical investment management, but you could do, no matter if you have less than a hundred thousand, even $10,000 or euros, you can become a trend follower. You may not get the same returns, but let's take a simple example. Let's assume that you start to say, well, I gotta be diversified. So I come up with some variation of 60, 40 stock, stock bonds. Okay, and I've got my core allocation. There's nothing that does that prohibits you from saying, I'm going to follow a trend for both my stock indices. It could be a usage fund. It could be an ETF and my bond ETF or usage fund. And follow the price action, follow the trend. And if let's say that you know the trends are declining in equities, I'm going to lighten up that 60-40. I might actually cut it down to 40%. Okay, We're not may not get the same return impact. But you get the same benefit from trend following even for a small account. It could be a long-only account. You don't even have to go short. You could just sort of say that I'm going to look at the set of of assets in my portfolio and I'll just rebalance and and with against cash. So it could be is, is that if you have stocks going down, I should lighten up my stock exposure. Now, I don't want to make it that simple. But it can be, and then and it's a great way to introduce yourself to trend following, and then you sort of say, well, maybe I'd like to get more exposure across a broader set of commodities, and I might invest with a professional manager. Or I could sort of say, I'm going to apply this to a, a more of my portfolio and become a little bit more aggressive there's been a fair amount of research that shows that even if you take that 60 40 and you sort of use it as a mechanism for asset allocation trend following you're going to receive some benefit go back to 2008 and 2009 or 2000 if you followed a simple trend following uh, model you probably would have lightened up your equity exposure at when we were going into a recession And you probably would have a higher level of principle (laughs) than than if you didn't do that. So there's nothing wrong with marrying some simple concepts like diversification with trend following. And you you could also add in something like value if you sort of have, have a value tilt. There's been some great work that shows that if you marry value with trend following, with good asset allocation, you can get benefits relative to a static portfolio.
1: I mean, I think those are really important points. And I actually think the distinction between the philosophy of trend following and how you then practically implement it, I think these are definitely two things that are somewhat different because the first thing can certainly be done by everyone, right? You can think about your investing as a trend follower, meaning you would never start to try and buy a market that is falling, for example. It's a simple concept. You just don't do that. You wait for prices to move higher and and then you can follow that. Specifically to Omar's point, I understand the temptation to look at things like long-dated options to, to do that. But I have some reservations personally. And I'm thinking mostly, and I don't have any data, Omar, that I can give you here. But what I'm thinking is that, sure, if you get on a trend with an option and the market actually starts to move you know, pretty much right away and it moves substantially, it can be fine. But if you go through a two, or I'm thinking about a market like cocoa, right? That's been, and I don't even know whether you could trade that as an option. But just an example, if you look at a chart of cocoa, I mean, it's been stuck in a range for five years or something like that, going up and down and up and down. And I'm just thinking, if you keep buying options and then you have to stop and reverse, et cetera, et cetera, this is where I see options as being something that is really going to cost you a lot of money. Whereas if you could do it through Another way, like an ETF or a futures, et cetera, et cetera, you might not lose so much money. but th- th- this is where I feel the danger is with options is that, and we know most markets, you know, can be stuck in a range for for quite a while.
2: well, there is a distinction between do you want trend following or do you want leverage? <laughs> and And that too. and so so for Omar is this is that you may not want to hear this, Omar. But if you're buying options, is that one of the reasons why you're buying the option is because you want to have a lot of leverage in your trade, so you want to sort of amp up the uh, potential return, and that's important in trend following because you do get the advantage of leverage when you trade futures. But yes. that's different than the strategy of using price behavior to tell you the direction of markets. So, so yeah. you have to separate those two, and it's sort do you want the leverage, or do you want the trend? <laughs>
1: yeah And I think again, as I said, I think these are really important points to think about. and and maybe there are better ways for Omar. I mean, maybe there are some ETFs where you can get the exposure that you want. It's, as I said, it may not be exactly how we do it, of course, using futures, but it still may be a lot better than what you would otherwise end up with. And I think that's the thing. we We all have to start somewhere. And if this is the way to do it, I'm all for it. And it's another good way of actually getting to think like a trend follower and practice, you know, rules-based, 100% disciplined investing philosophy, which, of course, is a very important part, if not the most important part of being a systematic trader. It's the discipline to follow your own rules.
2: And you have to sort of match your the strategy you use with the amount of time and effort you'd like to put in. And so mm. for a perfect example is that if you're hiring a professional quantitative trader, rules-based trader, trend follower, is that they're looking at markets every day, every minute. This is their livelihood. They're being paid a fee to professionally manage your portfolio. And they're looking at this on on a tick-by-tick basis. This is their job. If you apply trend following to your personal portfolio, you might say, I don't have time to do this as a professional. So therefore, I'm going to have to change my behavior and accept that my behavior is going to be commensurate with the time and effort I put in. And I think we talked about it in one of our previous podcasts about op tempo, which is the operation tempo that you have. And if, let's say, that you're a non-professional investor, you're going to have to be using longer-term trends. You're probably not going to use leverage. You're probably then going to sort of update this on maybe a weekly basis. There's nothing wrong with that. It just means is that your system or your behavior is going to be different than if you're a professional.
1: Yeah, and I think actually we can tie this into a couple of discussions we've had on the show in recent times. The first one is just this general observation between you know us being kind of medium to long-term trend followers and then the short-term traders that, of course, you know is part of the industry as a whole as well. And just from that point of view, when you decide whether you want to be a long-term trend follower or a short-term trend follower, it has huge implications of the amount of work involved with that. The second thing, which Jerry and I actually touched on last week, which I also mentioned, is this discussion about should we trade stock indices uh, through futures or should we trade individual equities as part of our trend-following portfolio? And of course, Jerry is very clearly in the single stocks camp. I mean, he thinks that's a better way of doing it. And logically, you could say it sounds right, right? Because you have many more opportunities some of these stocks will have mega trends and like Tesla and stuff like that. And so you think, yeah, I should do that. And then we were on a call during the week, and I think it was Max who mentioned that he had done some research and he had found no evidence that actually doing it was better. And the whole conversation also brought up a few other things you need to be aware of. If you want to go down trading 500 individual stocks instead of, you know, the S&P 500, And that is, it's a lot more complex to trade 500 individual stocks. It's a lot more costly because when you go short, you have to borrow these stocks. So the time you have to put in is immense, really, compared to just trading a single futures contract. And then also, there's this new kind of issue you need to be aware of, at least. And that is something called short squeezes. Because when you are short some of these stocks, well, apparently there are groups now of people who are ready to... uh, to do a little bit of a squeeze from time to time, so it presents other risks. So even though we can logically think of it being, oh yeah, it must be advantageous to to trade the individual stocks because we can maybe catch a Tesla, sure, but you're going to get a lot of baggage with that and therefore it may not be as good as it, it might look. And I take the view that
2: as the way I view it is more that I'm rules-based, but I'm also more of a global macro person than than, a, than an individual stock. And I think the advantage of trading stock indices is, is that a lot of indices have some embedded serial correlation. and So it gives you a tailwind if you're a trend (laughs) there's (laughs) nothing better for a trend follower than than to have a market that's serially correlated and then it's just a matter of you're extracting that serial correlation that you find in prices you do have that in individual stock but the problem comes in is uh, from an individual stock basis is is the good part is that you have a huge sample and i love big samples if you have a big sample then you could sort of say i can try to find those quote-unquote fat pitches is it that if I have 500 stocks and I'm running trends on that is it that I'm only going to look for those trends that I think are very strong or very opportunistic so so that's the positive because you have this big uh, wealth of information the negative is that now you got to figure out what is a fat pitch (laughs) and sometimes the markets that have the strongest trends are also the ones that are most likely to reverse so you're for well, we saw for that. that this week, right? Yes. So you're looking for the fat pitches. and then at the same time is is that they may be subject to, uh, to uh, reversal. but the operational issues associated with trading individual stocks is much greater. Is, is that think of it just as in the data set, if you do do the s and p five hundred, you have five hundred stocks. You got to make sure they're clean data, you have to worry about the dividends and other issues that you have to face on the individual stock basis. you are Then you're gonna, uh, you can't trade every position, so you're going to have to look at some rank ordering mechanism. Then you have to sort of say, well, do I want to make it balanced between long and short? Do I want to have a bias? So there are a lot of features that you're going to have to work with. They're not insurmountable, but it adds complexity that you didn't have if you sort of focus in a global macro world. And so it takes not a different skill, but it's going to take certainly more work than if you have a limited set of markets.
1: Yeah. So anyways, we appreciate your question, Omar, and your follow-up. And as I said, I think the most important thing is you think like a trend follower, how you will end up implementing it. Of course, it will be a function of some other factors, but hopefully you will get to a point where one day you can do it through futures. It makes life a lot. Easier. Now we have a question from Mohammed. Mohammed writes Hello, I'm a struggling forex trader. I haven't traded futures yet. My biggest challenge is patience, discipline, and fear of missing opportunities. I'll be glad to hear some advice about how to overcome these challenges. Thank you in advance. I think, Mohammed, that's probably something a lot of people feel. So I don't think you're the only one. <laughs> Welcome to uh, the club. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to let Mark speak to these uh, challenges that you mentioned with patience, discipline, and fear of missing opportunities.
2: When you think about it, that this is that you've compressed in three words all of the issues of behavioral finance and why you want to have rules. This is that the whole objective of rules is to offset our natural human tendencies from the three words that you mentioned. And I'll always go back to the, I love the stories. If you remember Ulysses, when he was going to, wanted to hear the sirens. And so he had his his shipmates, you know, lash him to the mast. And then they, they put, obviously, uh, wax in their ears. So they couldn't hear the sirens, but he could hear it. And he said, well, no matter what you do, does it make sure that I say lashed to the mast? And that's part of rules-based uh, investing. Is, is is that our natural tendency is that we want to so we're going to be driven to the rocks because we're going to hear the sirens. And the reality is that you want to set uh, impose a set of rules upon yourself so that you could be able to offset your natural human tendencies.
1: Yeah, and what I would suggest, Mohammed, is also because a lot of this is you know you just have to do it right. And however you end up doing it uh, in order to just follow the rules and and not be impatient and and not be fearful and all of that stuff. I would suggest you go to uh, the website, the Top Traders Unplugged website, and you go under the tab called Podcast, and you choose the one called Top Traders Roundtable. On that page, I think that comes up, I think it's episode 26 and 27, and it's with Daniel Crosby. And Daniel Crosby has written a few books about behavioral finance. And we talk a lot about these issues on that two-part conversation. So uh, I invite you to go and listen to that. I hope it'll be helpful to kind of understand the background to why these things are are so difficult. But also, as Mark just said, this is exactly why you want the rules, right? This is what's going to help you overcome these three things that you so poignantly pointed out. So, good. Thanks for that, Mohammed
2: one thing i guess i would sort of add is this is that trend following and rules-based investing is not supposed to be fun it's not supposed to be exciting you know it's it's lonely it's it requires a tremendous amount of diligence and it doesn't lend itself to what you'd like to see. Is I call it cocktail party conversation. When we we started out our podcast, we talked a little bit about narrative versus trend. Is that everybody loves a narrative? Everyone loves a good story. You love to be able to, you know, people say, "Well, what do you think the Fed is doing?" And you come back and you say, "Well, here's what I think of, you know, Chairman Powell, and this is what I think the ECB is going to do." Uh, a trend follower. You know, is going to be the boring person at the party because it's say, Well, what do you think of pa- Paul? And say, I don't have an opinion about Paul. I just sort of said that here's what happened in the bond markets, and here's what I did to react to it. And if the bond markets change on Monday and Tuesday, I might do something else. So whatever I tell you I did on Friday may be different next week because the price action might give me a different indicator. You know, if people are huddled around, and want to talk to you and hear your opinions on markets, you're going to be pretty boring. <laughs> you're not going to have a very good narrative or story.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. The last question this week is from Abhishek. And Abhishek writes, First of all, thanks for these great and informative content or episodes. This is the best podcast on systematic trading, and it has helped me a lot in creating a trend-following mindset and helped me become a profitable trader question. We know that fundamentals do not have any importance in trend following, but how important is the role of technical analysis? Jerry and Moritz often talk about one entry, one one stop, one exit, and this is what I have also incorporated in my system. It seems trend following does not give much importance to even technical analysis. I then wonder, what is trend following? Now, Abhishek, before we answer uh, this question, I just want to share with the audience that I did go back to you by email and asked you a simple question, and then you ended up actually answering your own question about about technical analysis. So, but I thought actually this was a good topic and a good question in general because I do think people can be somewhat confused between the difference between trend following and technical analysis and so on and so forth. So that's why I'm bringing it up today also on the podcast itself, but. Mark, do you want to talk from your perspective a little bit about how you see the difference between trend following and what people may often think is similar, and that is technical analysis? Well, I think trend following
2: is is obviously we could backtest, we could be able to analyze, and we can then be able to measure the effect of what we do. So, you know, whether for all of trend following, I could be able to sort of say that, you know, given this trend model, I could sort of say, here's the number of trades, here's what my profitability would be, here's my return to risk that I look at. I can be able to uh, measure and then be able to scientifically or statistically assess the skill of what I do. The problem with technical analysis in general is this is that while some people have done a, job, a good job of trying to measure different technical patterns or rules in general they have not been put under close statistical scrutiny now uh, i think one that has done you know has tried to attempt at is andy lowe up at mit you know he's associated with some trend following and he looked at pattern recognition to try to you know test this and determine this and when you look at this is that You get different results, but we'll sort of say that in general, the technical analysis is may be effective in some cases at the extreme, but again, it hasn't been. Some of the rules have not been given the same type of scrutiny that trend following has been given.
1: Yeah, and and I think I can't remember exactly what I wrote back to Abhishek in terms of question, but I mean, of course, there are some things where you could say, yeah, there's definitely similarities or overlap between. Some of the techniques that are used in te- technical analysis, and some of the things we do in trend following, but one one of the, I mean, for example, some of the indicators that you see trend in in technical analysis, you can certainly find in trend following for sure. But I think trend following, as we talked about earlier, it's it you know it's a philosophy, it's a mindset, it's a set of you know it's a set of rules that you follow. And technical analysis, to me, is doesn't have all of that, so to speak. It has a lot of other things, but I don't know how disciplined technical analysts are some are for sure but I have a feeling that you know not everyone as we are 100% disciplined when it comes to how we apply our rules and so on and so forth so but anyways the good thing is Abhishek I think you got your answer and you answered it yourself which is always which is always important Okay, Mark, now you also shared a few topics with me. Some of them we've kind of touched on already, but I never know exactly where you want to go with these things. So we'll bring them up and we'll see whether we've done enough work on that or whether we we want to go back. But of course, it was a week where the Fed played a dominant role and you wrote to me that one of the topics would be the Fed. So so where do you want to go with, with the Fed today? Well, I think that...
2: Th- the important from an investor's perspective, you always want to say is is that when you get news, you're constantly trying to determine, is there a signal in the news? okay? And let's say the fundamental trader says this, that news is gives unique information that I can process and then be able to use to make a better decision. Okay, A trend follower will say, I accept that news will have an impact on markets. But I don't know for sure how to assess that news and so therefore I'll wait and see until what the price action tells me which is the aggregation of everyone's opinion. And then I will try to draft behind what is the aggregation of everyone's opinion to be able to make a decision and by uh, doing this consistently I should be able to make uh, profits. Okay. And a perfect example I always gave is that when it was trading, you know, grains, people would sort of say, well, how do you know more than Cargill? And I said, well, I don't. I don't even try. I don't try to sort of figure out how much, how much grain is put on barges down the Mississippi River, how much is traded in and moving through Rotterdam. All I ask, all I sort of say is that I let that leave that to the professionals, but I try to extract signals from all of their behavior and then be able to try to find trends and then act upon those. And that's slightly different. Now we come to the Fed and central banks in general have taken the view that, that they will provide markets with forward guidance. And forward guidance is to sort of say, we will give you signals of our policy before the policies occur, so that then you will not be surprised when we actually impose our policies. We will telegraph to you what we're going to do and when we're going to do it, so that we will not have these kind of surprises from our announcements. And yet, What we do now is is that we have exactly the opposite of what their intent is. And a perfect example would be is is that we have the dot plots. And you, you find, number one, the dot plots have been a very poor forecast of what interest rates will do in the future. So now... One could see it's somewhat odd that the very policymakers who drive policy can't forecast what they're going, they themselves are going to do in the future. But that's a separate issue. But in the press conference, uh, Chairman Powell said, you should take the dot plots with a grain, he used a quote, a grain of salt. So how do you get forward guidance when at the same time you say, we were going to tell you what our expectations of when rates will rise? in the future but the chairman will say we don't want you to actually follow what we're telling you even though this is what our best forecast is you should take that with a grain of salt so does that provide comfort does it provide good signals or does it provide anxiety uncertainty and more risk in the markets so
1: (laughs) it reminds me of rumsfeld known unknowns and all of that and yeah I mean, it's a great point you're making,
2: and the reason why I do this is that so so there's an objectives going there is this is that I could act from that narrative, okay? And I think a lot of investors had is that if you're going to push, you know, Fed action sooner. So basically, is that you're going to say the first action is occur, you know, in a, in the more recent future, albeit 18 months ahead. Well, then you're going to take off some of your steepeners, You're going to, uh, bonds are going to react, you're going to have some reaction on the reflation trade. But the difference would be, as a trend follower says, I may not be as smart as others at being able to disentangle what the chairman is saying, so I'm going to follow what the price action would be. And so there's the narrative and the interpretation of narrative and then there's following the price action. And so, so I think that when there's a high level of uncertainty, you want to sort of say that I, I want to still put more emphasis on what is the price action and the price behavior over trying to interpret the news and the narrative that I, I see. And you will sort of say, what is uncertainty? And I don't remember the author, but he referred to it. It's what you know the gap between what you know versus what you need to know to make it a decision. And we'll sort of say that there is more uncertainty because there's what I know from what uh, I heard at the announcement versus what I need to know to make a decision, that there's a bigger gap between those two. So therefore, in some people, you could be stymied or it impacts you on what you should do. And a perfect example would be is if you look at some markets, this is that, you know, corn sold off, you know, tremendously in so- as well as soybeans. And, you know, if there was more follow-through on the sell-off in corn and, and reversed the next day. So in some senses, this is that here you have unique markets and commodities, and yet they're reacting in over 3% on the next day after the F- Fed announcement. So a Fed announcement on interest rate increases 18 months in the future, which we're told you should take with a grain of salt, is having a 3.5% impact on corn markets. That doesn't seem to uh, to to make sense in terms of there is an overreaction and a narrative. We'll find that out when I think you look at the commitment of traders. They now break out, you know, money managers. My guess is that there is what you see in commodities is the financialization of commodities, is that people are trading this as an asset class is a reflation trade and what we'll find that a lot of people were reversing their index positions on this announcement. And that was one of the reactions that we see in commodity markets.
1: Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, it seems to me that in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years, maybe, we've seen this evolution where authorities like the Federal Reserve have basically tried to eliminate anything. I mean, they're trying to eliminate change to some extent, or certainly volatility, you know, from uh, growth numbers, I mean, GDP numbers, they kind of tried to do everything they could to avoid a recession, right? So that's part of what they seem to be doing. Mm And now they're doing all this guidance, forward guidance, um, because they're trying to avoid volatility in the markets. We shouldn't be surprised about anything. Yet we live in a world where we we actually like surprise. We like change. We kind of um, thrive in those markets. So you could say in some ways that at the moment, kind of change is kind of the enemy of the environment. Nobody likes that. But I have a feeling that when you do something like that, and you kind of massage your narrative, your outlooks, your whatever it might, your policies, whatever it might be, to keep people on this narrow, smooth path, when things don't turn up like you expect, then you're going to have a much bigger problem on your hands than you would otherwise have if people were somewhat comfortable and and used to seeing you know change and a recession from time to time not a deep one and so th- this is what i think is the big problem and i think that as many people have said before you can't remove risk you can only you know what do you say put it into the future so you can't destroy risk but you you could you can push it into the future yeah, you could push That's it you
2: could repackage it you can give it to yeah. somebody else you can put it into the future yeah risk cannot be destroyed it can only be repacked it, it may it only be repacked or sent to someone else and there's the old phrase and I, I think it was by herb stein who said that you know in some sense a business cycle or a economy without a recession and without you know bankruptcy is like christianity or catholicism without sin you know, this is that that we can't be immune to the fluctuations in the business cycle. We can't be immune to just the fact that there is going to be success in, an, in a capitalist economy. And there's also going to be failure. And when governments attempt to try to say, I'm going to eliminate all failure, then you have this have the problem that we might be discussing is that in some senses is that the FOMC is in a pickle to some degree because. We wanted to ensure that there was going to be no failure at all. They may have, and now we have, we'll sort of say perhaps excessive money. And we know that there's to some degree excessive money because of the large amount of reverse repos. So, and, it, and in some senses is that we have the signal there are technical reasons with treasury general account being drawn down. And, you know, there's less tr- treasury issuance. These are all technical issues, but at the end of the day, we have excess supply of money relative to what is being printed. And now they have to reverse repo it to sort of be able to sop up the excess.
1: Yeah, no, it's all about unintended consequences to some extent, right? And also, I mean, things like junk bond yields are, you know, at their lowest level ever which and some of the yields are just crazy when you think about that there is real risk involved and it's not a small asset class i think it's like four trillion in in assets under management in or or, or in assets in in that area but anyway my my point is just that i think that yes okay we've so far they've been reasonably successful to keep you know, the market's are out of too much trouble in the last 10, 12 years. Last year, of course, they weren't in control of COVID. I accept that. But, but and maybe they responded initially at least the only way that they could. And maybe that avoided an even bigger crisis. But, you know, now with are forecasting 7.1% uh, US GDP, yet they're still pushing in $120 billion a month in new purchases. I mean, it's just at some point, it just seems a little bit. Crazy, but right. my 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 final point is on all of this is I actually in a funny way think it's good news for trend following for the for strategies that are divergent in nature for tr- strategies that thrive when we have change and uncertainty because I think it will come not that I think it's going to be pleasant. Or nice for most people in the world. But it also brings up this point. And I know you have an inflation on, on on as one of your topics as well this week, Mark, but it brings up this discussion that is so I've had the discussion a couple of weeks ago with Jason Bach on the podcast uh, about building portfolios that essentially can withstand different regimes. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Intuitively, I think that actually do make a lot of sense in where you combine volatility and trend following with some more classical investment uh, strategies. But I think actually that we may be living through at the moment as content creators, podcasters, bloggers, whatever it might be, but people who are trying to get investors to think outside the classical 60-40 portfolio, which has stood them well, I'm not dismissing that it has stood them well for the last you know 20, 20 30 years or so it's it's been a great investment but I just have this sneaky feeling that we're coming to an end of this era I mean the I do believe in cycles and I think the 40-year interest rate cycle is coming to to an end or has come to an end and and I just think that the ripple effect from a change like that is going to be so profound and it's going to hurt so many people if they're unprepared for it and and i'm you know i really do hope that people have taken an opportunity as we've seen in the last you know few months at least it's not like you've had to time it perfectly but you've had a a good period of time now to try and think differently and there's a lot of good ideas out there in terms of building these more resilient robust overall portfolios to deal with a more uncertain future that I see compared to what we have uh, seen. But I think last year gave us a glimpse of what an uncertain future can look like when something happens like, in this case, a virus.
2: Right, well, and, but we're living in an uncertain future right now. That, that didn't stop in March. The reflation environment is still highly uncertain. Now, when I made my comments about the, the Fed and, and, you know, and the forward guidance, it's not to make it may sound very judgmental. The attempt was not judgmental. The attempt was to sort of say like, well, as an investor, how do you deal with something like that? And what I'm sort of saying is that when there is a, when a government such as a central bank is trying to provide forward guidance, but then you read the newspaper and you might sort of say, I'm a little confused on exactly what they're telling me. That's the reason why you want to sort of use certain systems and processes in order to sort of offset the confusion I can spend a lot of time looking at uh, reading the tea leaves and I think that there are a lot of uh, smart macro traders that then said okay I'm gonna take off my trade steep in my term premium steepeners I got to reverse my trade I got to reduce my leverage to a reflation trade given that information but at the same time is is that there's another approach is to say I will follow the price behavior and, then, and that might mean that I'm going to get stopped out. It may mean I could have to reset my positions, but I'm not going to try to focus on what I'm being told or what I'm hearing. I'm going to focus on what the price is telling us. And so, so there's not a judgment in that other than Human beings will create uncertainty because they may be imprecise in their language. And I always half joke with my children that are growing up is, is that they'd say, Well, what would you like for dinner? And they'd say, I would like or maybe I should have some some vegetables. And I say, Well, be precise in your language. Is <laughs> it do you want vegetables or not? <laughs> and and- We always sort of say precision in language and part of a lot of economic data, the government officials, when they talk to you, is that they don't want to provide precision in language. They don't want to say exactly what they're thinking. In fact, Alan Greenspan used to sort of say that if you can actually determine or figure out what I'm thinking, then I haven't been obtuse enough. So this especially applies to central bankers who don't want to be direct. and So, a way to get around that as an investor is to focus in on the price action and focus in on the information that's from people who are putting dollars on the line, both on the long and south and long and short side. Their aggregate behavior is providing information that's associated with dollar votes. Dollar votes in markets is more important than, than words coming from governments.
1: It sounds so much common sense when you when you put it like that, Mark, yet most people, and I don't mean by a little margin, but really most people around the world in, involved in investing prefer the narrative story on CNBC and Bloomberg or from a press conference or whatever, than just the boring advice we give, and that is to just follow price and you'll be fine. And we have, by the way, 50 plus years of real evidence to show that it's actually working, yet most people prefer to doubt. And then, and actually, speaking of narrative, not that I want to bring this and make this into a bit We've talked so much about Bitcoin, so I don't really want to do that. But it has been interesting for me to follow just how the narrative in the Bitcoin space has changed after the most recent sell-off, actually, and, and how they, and I say they, but I, I imagine those who are most kind of hardcore Bitcoiners and who believe that it, it will go a lot higher, which it may well do, that, you know, they use this phrase FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and they just, you know, use that all the time in terms of trying to dismiss the narrative, right? Or, or, or No, not the narrative, but the part of the narrative they don't like, right. like in, in in energy consumption and, and what have you to mine Bitcoin and stuff like that. So it's just interesting to see how different industries deal with these things. I mean, we've had to deal with our part of a negative narrative for decades, really, and how these strategies would be, you know, are so much more risky than other things. And, oh, do you use leverage? Oh my God, that's not good. All of that stuff. So I find it Interesting just to see how other people deal with a little bit of negative press, so to speak. Well,
2: and I think that why we love narrative. Everybody loves narrative because storytelling is innate innately human. You know, whether we're sitting around the, the fire telling early stories, is that it's emotional, it draws people in, it's easy to remember. So so narrative is Part of being, you know, to some degree, you could sort of say it's part of being human at the same time is, is yeah. that what we're saying is that the the great parts about narrative, the fact that it draws people in, it's emotional, it tells a story, it's looking for a consistency of all your facts. If you tell a good narrative about a reflation trade, then you also have to be rational in the sense of consistency you know the following the prices it's not emotional it doesn't draw you in with a story it doesn't have to be consistent so you can sort of believe that inflation is higher yet you could still be some short some markets that are supposed to be inflation protected you could be uh, right now you could be in a situation could be short grains and, and long oil now how is that a reflation trade? Is that from a narrative that would seem to be inconsistent, the, but from a trend follower, that there's no inconsistency there, it makes perfect sense. And I, you know, admit that I'm not, you know, always a price purist, but I always sort of say that's the null that you could start with. So, you know, there there is room for other interpretations or room for other factors that can be used in how you build a portfolio and, and how you size things. I think that for everyone, you should say, this is a good starting place to, to begin, is that what is the prices telling us, and as opposed to what is the narrative that you're hearing in the marketplace.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, actually, just thinking of that is that, of course, narrative changes, right? We've seen that with the Fed. I mean, they had kind of one narrative, and now they have adopting, uh, or they're in the process of adopting maybe another one. And and we know that's completely normal throughout you know, all parts of society. But what doesn't seem to change much is really human nature and human behavior. And so having a rational, disciplined strategy that focuses on the only truth, which is price, and that is kind of relying on humans don't not changing too much, really, would seem like a really good strategy, right? And then, again, we find us back to this point where too few people have sufficient exposure to that strategy, which, of course, is trend following. In terms of other topics, Mark, where do you want to go? I said I want to talk about inflation, and you know
2: now, now that we have the reflation inflation bubble has been burst one week now, I would say I want to talk about inflation. And- right. I think that I want to go back to, you know, the, the sort of key points. And I, th- I think that we talked at our last podcast, I said, is that there are three Ds of inflation. There's distortion, delay, and a, a destruction of wealth. That's still in place. So even though the Fed may say that, well, we're, we're going to start talk about tapering, even though that they've uh, said that we might move our dot plots up, you know we still see that uh, their 2020 year one forecast for inflation has went up 1% in one quarter went from 2.4% to 3.4% so for a lot of people you're going to see if if their forecast comes true for the years, is that you've just seen 3.4 percent of your wealth been, have just been destroyed by inflation. Your purchasing power has just gone down by 3.4 percent across the board in the United States and Europe. You know, is that it's less, but you're still seeing the same effects. You still have real rates are still negative. We have nominal rates in Europe, still, you know, very much negative. So in those situations, this is that you still have to sort of, we still have to realize is that inflation is still with us. It is not going away. It's still eroding our wealth. And that means is that active management is required to try to protect yourself from this erosion, from inflation.
1: Yeah, and, and on, on top of that, I just want to add one thing, which I'm sure most people listening to us is fully aware of. But I will say that correlation between equities and bonds tend to behave somewhat differently in a high inflation-slash-interest rate environment compared to a low Uh, inflation and interest rate environment because when you go back and you look at that you see that in the last 20 years or so for the most part correlations between the two asset classes have been negative which has been perfect you've had every time equities have had troubles interest rates have gone down and and that's been super prices have gone up that's where the negative correlation comes from but over time if you go back 50 or 100 years you find where interest rates were somewhat higher for sure In general, and you just notice that the correlation is historically positive between those two asset classes. So, this is why, just going back to what I said earlier, I fear that a lot of portfolios are not really well suited for a change in overall sentiment environment, whatever we call it, and where inflation certainly will play a big role in that. And so the inflation debate is perhaps the most important debate, really, from an investor's point of view. And I'm not saying that there is any clear conclusions right now. There are many smart people in each camp. So it's something we will have to continue to watch and follow. But maybe, as we've seen from, quote-unquote, the narrative out there... You know, there are ways where you can build portfolios where you don't need to worry too much whether you're in an inflation or deflation environment because you have built a portfolio that is able to handle different regimes. And interestingly enough, of course, from our point of view, is that trend following and and volatility strategies plays a A very important part, if that's what you want to achieve. And that's especially the fact that
2: part of the idea of building a diversified bond stock portfolio is is that you sort of say, well, there's a good chance one may be overvalued and then the other asset will be undervalued. So stocks are overvalued. Well, I can maybe put more of my money in bonds because it may be undervalued. We're in the unique situation, and the reason why there's so much extra cash floating around is that you could have overvalued in both equities and bonds. And so, in that case, you're going to hold high cash balances. If you, and that's the reason why is this is that you know a lot of money is in money funds. And this getting outside the technical issues, this is that, and so interest rates are going close to zero, and they had to raise the uh, reverse repo rate because if you know, given to left to its own devices, you you know. Treasury bills would probably go negative and, and we'd have negative rates in the United States. We you see that touch before. So when you have overvalued equities and bonds, then you have to sort of change your behavior and you have to maybe move from a situation where before we are thinking you know, in a class of 60 40, you could say, Well, I can be able to build this passive portfolio. But if all assets are, or more assets are overvalued, it may require more active management. And that's uh, what we're really seeing change. So if you say, Well, why are we suggesting that we should be more active as trend followers going forward? It's because a lot of assets are all overvalued. And so you're a matter of trying to avoid the lesser evils of overvaluation.
1: Yeah. Now, final point I wanted to make just today before we start to wrap up is just... And I can't remember if we spoke about this last time, to be perfectly frank. But it's this much... When people get to the conclusion about, okay, so I probably do need... Not just from listening to what we say, but doing their own research, of course... Maybe I do need to include trend following in my portfolio, and and maybe may, you know maybe you know you, it has to be meaningful and all of that stuff, right? The the question is just when is the best time to invest in trend following? And of course, we all know the slogan saying, "Well, it's obviously best to buy the bottom of a drawdown, and so on and so forth." But I actually did a little bit of research to to give people an illustration that maybe it's not so important in terms of time when you're a long term investor. And so what I looked at was just to say, well, maybe there is a, a way to say, okay, what would an extreme starting point be to make such an allocation if you wanted to have the best risk adjusted return over time? And I could think of sort of four different starting points that would be quite extreme. One would be right before the tech bubble burst or right after when it at, at, when equities were at their low. And then also the same with the great financial crisis, the debt crisis. And these starting points of a tech bubble, you could say, okay, that's September 2000. And at the low, it was October 2002. And so I just did a simple optimization in terms of Sharpe ratio, even though I'm not a big fan of Sharpe ratio. But on a portfolio level, it's probably better than single line items, as we've discussed on the podcast. So, when you do a, a simple optimization, you're looking for the best risk adjusted returns, and you're only looking at three asset classes. And I, in this case, I used MSCI World Index for equities and the World Government Bond Index for, for fixed income. And then I used our own trend following, Dunn's trend following strategy uh, as the trend following part. And what I found was that whether you started just before, so September 2000, or whether you started in October 2002 at the low of equities, the allocation to trend following was almost the same. 10% if you started before, 8% if you started after. That's quite interesting because the big change in the allocation was really between the equities and the bonds, which is not surprising but it kind of shows you that trend following should be, at all times, part of your portfolio. And actually, maybe the timing, if you're a long-term investor, isn't that important. So I did the same with the, the debt crisis, just to see again, you know, what does it mean, whether you chose, quote-unquote, right before the crisis or just after the crisis. And of course, before the crisis, would, you would benefit from having more trend following because it was the crisis was good for followers. So the allocation to trend following before the crisis should, if you wanted the highest Sharpe ratio at the end of April, I think of this year from back then, you should have allocated 22% to uh, to trend following. But if you did it at the at just after the crisis, it would have been 14%. So on average, around sort of 15, 16, 17%. So meaningful, yeah, and but actually not hugely different. Again, the biggest difference is really between your Equities and your fixed income allocation. So I just thought that's maybe surprising to people that even those four extreme starting points gives relatively consistent allocations to, to trend following.
2: Right. And the big difference is, is that trend following is a long, short strategy. There is no implicit, you know, valuation of overvalued or undervalued in a trend following strategy. Is so so when you think about Long only investing. You could say, I can time that to the extent that it could be overvalued. And after a big drawdown, it could be undervalued. That's not the case with trend following because if you're constantly clearing out positions and you could go both long and short, it's hard to sort of say that, well, at this particular time, I, you know, after, a, let's say, a, a big drawdown, I could say, I should invest because somehow something has been cleaned out of the portfolio and I'm going to get a cheaper portfolio of trend-following positions. There's no sense of cheapness or richness with trend-following. You could sort of say the, the gap, is, as you often point, the gap between where the price is versus where your stopout could be you know, a measure of cheapness or richness.
1: Or low risk, maybe I would actually classify it as yeah. a low risk entry, And I, which is, as I said, sorry to interrupt here, Mark, but as I said in the beginning, that corrections like what we've seen last week, where clearly, you know, trend following strategies could easily have lost 5-10% this week, that you can also look at these things as opportunities, right? I mean, there's just a better opportunity to get into trend following after a correction like that, because it was, quote unquote, overdue after 6 months of pretty decent run up in performance you know it's going to come we know that you know the majority of the trades we do are losing trades so therefore the majority you Know of returns, I mean, can easily we can easily have these uh, periods where we just see a a contraction of some of the returns that we've generated. That's completely normal. So I would just call it a lower risk entry point. Yeah, when you see drawdowns like that,
2: the the entry point is different. I don't, you know, I guess they always heard it was a a correction overdue. I guess this is that given the fact that there is a some trades were crowded, given the narrative and trends were both consistent. So both were, you know, giving us the sort of same indicators. You could sort of say that there's more likely that there's going to be some momentum crash if new information comes in. So, you know, I give you that. But it's harder to say in a long, short strategy and with different time frames for trend following, whether it's uh, something is overdue or if it's rich or cheap.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To round things off, as we always do, let's look at how the industry is uh, shaping up. This is, of course, at the end of Thursday. Friday was probably also a negative day for the industry, so just be aware of that. These numbers are most likely a little bit better than what they really are at the end of the week. But the beta 50 uh, index has uh, gone negative for the month, down 1.79%, still up 5.27% for the year. The SockGen CT index down almost 2% for the month, up 5.52% for the year. Trend index suffering a bit more, down 3.04% uh, for the month, down, uh, sorry, up 647 for the year. Short-term traders index uh, still down for the month, 0.36% uh, of a percent st- and up 1.14% for the year. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the short-term guys, you know, have done okay this week. The trend barometer I already mentioned was standing at 34 at the end of uh, Friday, which is a weak reading. MSCI index also lost a little bit of value, down 72 basis points, still up 9.82 for the year. And the World Government Bond Index actually did have a good month so far, up 53 basis points. Mark, I don't know if you have anything in mind that you wanted to share with people in terms of a resource that... uh, you've come across in the last few weeks that kind of have entertained you. If not, it's okay. I have my own little thing that I wanted to mention, but right. I don't know well, if you've come across. One book I about.
2: read, I, I've alluded to this in maybe the past, is is called The Half-Life of Facts by Sam Aberson. And he talks about the fact that, you know, a lot of our knowledge actually we find is wrong and as is, is, is actually then we get new facts that supersede the old facts of what we know. And what he mentions is that knowledge process is not always of addition, but it's also of subtraction. This is that we add new information, but then we also, you know, clean out old information that we found out was wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that gravity is going to change, but a lot of the science that we produced, you know, 10 years ago, we find out that we when we got new information, new testing, we find out that it's different. And so, so think about that. For uh, it's provocative, and should be thought about from the information that you see in financial news. Is that the, there is a half life of facts?
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. And so, my choice for this week, and sometimes these choices are a little bit random, but I actually happened to tune in on a short, relatively short interview with the author Michael Lewis, of who, of course, is best known maybe in our parts of the industry for Moneyball and The Big Short and stuff like that. But anyway, Michael Lewis has written a new book called The Premonition, which is about the pandemic, and he's such a great storyteller. So I, th- I think this is a-, a book that I probably might listen to. I-, I tend to listen to books rather than read them, but I think I might listen to this book, not least because he was he was incredible in describing some of the characters in the book, and this is about scientists and authorities and all of that, and there was this... Sort of short story of one of these hardcore scientists who, and I don't know, it, I don't think it's related to necessarily the pandemic we've seen, but certainly viruses. And one of the things that they had to do apparently was to try and first isolate a particular virus from a snake. I think it was from a boa. And then afterwards, they had to try and inject it into the heart of a python to see if the python actually was the. I don't know what the word was, but it's, you know, apparently pythons were immune to this virus, right? But he described it quite funny because he said, have, you know, have you ever tried to put a needle in the heart of a snake? And of course, the the, <laughs> the lady who who were doing the interview said no. And he said, well, actually, the heart of a snake moves up and down. And so he was describing this picture of... You know, one person trying to hold the snake, which obviously wasn't happy. Another one standing with some kind of measurement where they could see where the heart was inside the snake. And a third one trying to stick in the needle with this virus. And so it was just a funny way that he described it. But of course, he is eminent in storytelling. So anyways, it is about the vi- the pandemic, of course, the his new book and the roles of, of the CDC and, and others. So, So we'll see how that is before we wrap up of course maybe i can just repeat our big wish for every one of you who have not yet left a rating and review please go to itunes and do so they help so much you wouldn't believe it so it's really Perhaps a small token of your appreciation for us putting in this time every week that you would go and do that for us. And of course, as you know now, you have to follow the podcast. You don't subscribe to podcasts anymore because that costs money. You now have to follow the podcast. If you see a little sign on your iTunes or Spotify where it says follow, we would certainly also appreciate you doing that. Next week, I'm joined by Rob before his summer break from the podcast. He's going to be away over the summer. So if you have some really difficult questions for uh, Rob, by all means, please send them in at uh, the usual place, info at And we'll do our best to answer all of uh, those. And from Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
0: Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.